Welcome to Breitbart News Daily. I know yesterday we talked about crime as well, but there are some some more developments in the stories we talked about yesterday that need to be talked about. And uh, I got a few more stories for you just to drive this point home and to find a new, to prepare emotionally and spiritually and physically for a new rock bottom. Whatever you think the rock bottom is or is going to be, uh, you better make a new one. Now, there is hope, too, at the end. There is hope. That's often what the rock bottom is. It's rock bottom. So that then you can turn things around. So we chat about that as well. Not, I was I was wanting to not talk about crime today, but I saw last night that the local CBS affiliate in New York City blurred out the video of the guy who stabbed the guy in New York City. They they, they caught him. They arrested him. And CBS blurred out the video of him being arrested and put in the cop car. Have you ever seen that in your life? As long as you've lived, have you ever seen the news blur out a photo or a video of a, of a murderer, a suspected murderer, alleged murderer? We must protect the identity of the murderer. You know the story I'm referring to? I think we talked about it yesterday in this hour. Excuse me if... If we did again, but I want to make sure everyone's caught up in this. This guy in New York City is stabbed in front of his girlfriend by a crazy lunatic in, this, in New York City. And it turns out that the guy who was murdered is a far-left redu- uh, uh, harm reduction activist. It's like prison reform, all this left-wing stuff, right? Oh, Slater, you're dancing on the grave. I wouldn't say a thing about it. I really wouldn't. But his friends have come out and said that he, the guy who was murdered, would have felt sorry for the guy. I just want to be clear. I know it's, it's early, perhaps, where you are right now. The guy who was murdered would have felt sorry for the guy who murdered him in cold blood in the street for no reason. He, the, so the guy and his girlfriend were sitting on a bench. The, the murderer walked by, kicked over some scooters made a scene, looked over at these two, what are you looking at? Came over, stabbed him, got him three times, including in the heart, and then spit in his girlfriend's face. That's what happened. And the guy who was murdered would have felt sorry for him. So all of his friends came out, or all these friends came out, and said, oh, this is so terrible, we're so, so sad. We, this just proves we need to redouble our efforts of criminal justice reform in, in his name, in our murdered friend's name. We need to redouble the same efforts that led to this guy being on the street. The girlfriend refused to give a description of the murderer because he was black. The girlfriend, according to local news, refused to identify the murderer in a lineup 
They get the murder and like five other guys. Like, hey, which one is it? Refuse to participate. Not, oh, I don't know. I'm so, I'm so hectic and I just can't. Refuse to even play along. This is fascinating. So what's, what's the psychology of this? I think the psychology of this is, look how not racist I am. I, I am so not racist. And this is my opportunity to prove it. I can really, really super duper prove how not racist I am. Even when my own boyfriend is murdered. I can be not racist. And this has moved into cult territory, no question, where this guy is a martyr. You would think that this would cause everyone to rethink. Just to question a couple of, hmm, maybe this policy we're fighting for isn't good. Maybe we're wrong. You'd think it would cause people to question that. Nope. Nope. Because he's a martyr. And to them, it's just further proof of how, how much stronger, how much more they need to do. And that's a common thing with the left. It's a very common thing with the left. If they're fighting for something, a policy, that they do the policy, it doesn't work, or the opposite of the thing happens, which is all about, oh, well, that's just proof we need more of it. And that's just proof we didn't do enough of it sooner. Welfare is an easy example. Hey, we're going to give welfare to people, um, and, and it'll solve everything. Okay, well, it makes a lot of things worse. Uh, tons of unintended consequences. Oh, well, we need, to, we need to give people more welfare. That's just proof they need more welfare, right? That's an, this is an amazing story out of New York City. It really is. And then, and I wasn't going to bring it up again, but then NBC blurs out the video of him getting arrested. And check out this. This is a CBS headline. Suspect in fatal stabbing of activist seen crying after arrest. That's the headline. Seen crying. <laughs> I don't care. What do you mean? Why are you telling me he's seen crying? You want me to feel sympathy? Seen crying. Oh, he's only 18. We should let him go. He should have a second chance. Or third or fifth or fifth. I'm curious to see how many times he's already been arrested. His neighbor said two lives were lost that day. The guy murdered, so his life was like definitely lost, like like literally lost. And then uh, and then the murderer. Hmm. Yesterday in passing, I mentioned the story of the Yale graduate football player, prominent Chattanooga businessman, father of three. Just had an eight has an eight week old baby at home, eight week old baby walking down the street of Chattanooga for no reason. Guy comes, shoots him in the head at point blank range. Just happened the other day, shot him in the head. A fifty seven year old who had sixty six prior arrests, sixty six prior arrest, never served more than six months in jail at a time. Sixty six times this guy's been arrested. No word yet on if he was seen crying after he was arrested. I think he deserves a 67th chance, though. I don't know all the details of him. I don't. But two lives were lost that day. Now check this out. 
like people feel bad for the murderer. People feel bad for the murderers. So friends of Ryan Carson, the New York City activist, set up a GoFundMe. Okay, now this happens a lot when someone dies. They set up a GoFundMe. What what do you think the money goes to? The money clearly goes to uh, funeral costs. Cost to the family, funeral costs, burial costs. Very expensive. Not anything anyone budgets for. So horrible. So people are going to donate to the funeral. Nope. Okay, yeah, you're right, Slater. You wouldn't share this. You wouldn't share a GoFundMe if it was for funeral costs. Okay, I bet the money, ah, ah, I bet the GoFundMe goes to the organization, the nonprofits that he worked for that encouraged uh, all this prison reform stuff that led to, I bet, I, bet, I bet that's why you're sharing. Nope, not even that. Hi, everyone. We are a collective of Ryan's close friends reeling from a brutal loss. We are asking for your help on behalf of his partner in easing the burden and stress of this horrifying situation so that we have space and time to grieve and remember Ryan. Okay, what do you mean? Immediate needs are to offset the costs of working class people taking time off of work to properly mourn. What? You're asking for money? So you don't have to go to work? Your friends? You're, you want money? So you, so you can, what do you, t- have, have you ever heard of that? Please give me money, my friend died, I'm sad. I'm sad my friend died, I don't wanna go to work, I need to properly mourn, so give me some money. And $70,000 have been raised in two days. <laughs> $70,000 are just giving money to just people. Just people, just not, not even the girlfriend necessarily, like not just the girlfriend, not for funeral costs, just to properly mourn. Never seen that before. That There's another analysis of psychology there. I don't even know what to do with that one yet. Give us money because we're sad. Here, all right, here's, here's the thing. There is no, there's, there's a certain amount of people and it doesn't matter what happens. They'll never, ever change their mind. Never. This is a store in DC, a CVS in DC that gets looted every single day, multiple times a day. And not, I don't mean looted, like you have a vision of looted where someone comes in, grabs a bunch of, but it's, people got shoplifting. This isn't shoplifting. Okay, shoplifting is you steal a candy bar or you steal one article of clothing, something like that. That's shoplifting. Looting is when you steal a bunch of stuff. You steal everything you can grab. This CVS is looted so often, there's nothing in it, ever. But they keep bringing in shipments of stuff. So they keep bringing in stuff, and then all of it gets looted again. It's just a free-for-all. It's everything in there is free, you just go and you steal everything. And the, st- the, the shelves are empty. I cannot express this enough. When I play this clip here, I want you to imagine stores that, sh- shelves that are 
completely empty. As if it's completely out of business, but it's not out of, well, I guess it's not a business at this point anymore because no one ever pays for anything ever. Here's the local uh, 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 Fox affiliate. According to people who work at the CVS in Columbia Heights, a big group of kids, like 45 or more, walk in before school, after school, and late at night to steal chips and drinks. They even throw the food and beverages on the ground and stomp on them, leaving behind a big mess. Fox 5 did witness teens doing that while inside the business and even after they walked outside. Staff at CVS have been alerted that thieves are aware of when new shipments come in, and that's when they target the store. Okay, let me pause there before I get to the main point. Do you see the digression of what we're doing here? So here's how it used to be. It used to be uh, never steal. You can't steal no matter what. You can't steal a pack of gum. You can't steal a candy bar. And if you do, we're going to march you back to that store and you're going to give it back and you're going to pay for it and you're going to uh, work chores to make up for it, right? You can't steal anything. You're going to hell if you do. That that was the starting point. And that's what we used to be. That's who we used to be. Then it degraded into something like, well, it's okay to steal if if it's essentials only and if you really need it. If you really need it, you can steal a loaf of bread and some eggs. Okay, if you have children to feed, then it's okay. Then it turned into, oh, you can steal whatever you want. It's fine, no big deal. Now it's, steal whatever you can carry. And on your way out, destroy whatever else you see. Obviously, you can't steal an entire store yourself, right? You can, you're only one man, you know what I mean? So you can bring in grocery bags or um, garbage bags and fill those up with everything. Because you can carry a lot, but you can't steal everything. So just go ahead and destroy everything else on the way. So you grab all the chips you can, and then you can, you know, a couple fall on the ground. Just go make sure you stomp on those. Just stomp on those for a while and destroy those as you walk out the door. That's the ne- that's that's where we are right now. Now these kids have no hope in a, in their life. They have no hope. They they they'll never do anything. They'll never do anything productive ever. There's no chance. Now if if there was some positive force interjected into their life for good, then there would be hope. Right? There could be an interdiction of something that could cause them to change, but that will not happen. So they will go home and they will do drugs and they will play video games and they will join a gang and they will only steal forever. And you will only be paying their welfare forever. And they will have 30 kids with many different women. And they'll never, those kids will never learn how to read. And this just goes on forever. It's absolute madness. Now we could stop it. We could stop it. But here's the thing. People don't want to. People don't want to stop it. So here's the, the, more, the uh, rest of the story from, from Fox 5 in D.C. They talk to people. They talk to people in the neighborhood. Now keep in mind again, the store is completely empty. Not, there's nothing left. There's nothing left in the store. And this is just the normal, this is what the store looks like. And here's, uh, they talk to someone, uh, a, a customer who does go in for prescriptions. They still have the prescriptions. So she goes in for the prescription and there's nothing else to buy. 
Some D.C. residents we spoke with actually expressed sympathy towards the people wiping out the aisles. I'm stuck. I mean, it's bad to do at the same time. They're probably doing it for a reason. They need those things, but they need those things. They need those things. You know, I'm stuck. They really need all the bags of potato chips they can carry. Actually express sympathy towards the people wiping out the aisles. I'm stuck. I mean, it's bad to do at the same time. They're probably doing it for a reason. They need those things, but they shouldn't just be going in and clearing the shelves because this isn't sustainable for the store. Yeah, okay. At least you have some sanity. I'd love to take, I want to, I want to take that group of uh, 45 kids. Let's just take one of the kids, one of the 45. Take them aside with all the stuff they stole in that day. And then uh, have the girl, that, that white woman there, uh, and the guy, the kid, right next to each other. And then the, the kid can show the woman what, what I stole today. And I want that woman to say, yeah, those things you really needed. You really needed those things today. It's okay you stole them because you really needed them. Here's another guy. Actually can't afford any of the things in there. I'm not saying that ceiling has to be the solution to that, right? However, I don't know, maybe the city could provide more accessible resources to unhoused or under-income under folks that can provide them like hair care, bodily care, hygiene care, etc. That could be an option. Oh. Oh. The excuses. I'm not saying stealing's good, but gosh, life is so much easier when you deal with principles. It's so much easier. Should I steal this thing or no? No. Oh, but no. But you th no. But what if I no? No. No. They're probably doing it for a reason. It's very difficult to take a stance on this. <laughs> if only we had more social services. Oh, man. <sighs> By the way, there's a bunch of graffiti on the outside of the store as well. Just tied into what we talked about the other day. Ah, it's amazing. Can I give you another one? Yesterday, we played the clip of Donald Trump saying we need to shoot to kill. And we played the clip of Richard Daly from Chicago in 1968 saying we need to shoot to kill. Put a stop to this stuff. That's what it takes. You need someone to, you need someone, you need someone to come in and say, no. You cannot steal. Oh, but what if I... No. You, you need someone to come in and do that. And Richard Daly did that when he was mayor of Chicago. And Trump says that's what he will do as well. Let me just play the Trump clip just so we're on the same page here. Well, I can't believe... You know, these people are killing people when they go into the stores. You'll have 300 young people who are not looking for a good future walk into a store, big department store, and just pillage it. And if you happen to be there when they're there, they'll knock the hell out of you and kill you in some cases. And we will immediately stop all of the pillaging and theft. Very simply, if you rob a store, you can fully expect to be shot as you are leaving that store. The point is... We don't, we're not going to allow it anymore. Okay, let me give you another example. So this black guy, Kevin uh, Ushery, walks into a jewelry store, pretends to be looking around. He's talking to the 
Asian jeweler, 68-year-old Asian jeweler on the other side of the glass. They're, they're looking at a piece. Calvin then proceeds to take out his gun and slam it in the side of the head of the 68-year-old jeweler. The robber grabs him by the neck from the other side of the counter, slams him three times in the side of the head, and the man falls to the ground. He then puts the piece of jewelry they were looking at into his pocket, climbs over the counter, kicks the man, stomps him twice in the head. At some point, and the family did not release this part of the video footage, the robber, 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 uh, miss, miss, or miss, uh, misunderstood person, takes out a hammer, hits him 28 times, Hits the jeweler 28 times with a hammer. Could you imagine? Could you imagine getting hit with a hammer one time? Anywhere on your body. Is there any place on your body? Like if you, if, if there's some guys, I'm going to hit you with a hammer. You get to pick those. Is there any place in your body that you would be like, okay, I think I could withstand a hammer hit and be okay. Okay. So he gets hit 28 times. Then stole $100,000 in jewelry. Okay. Now hear me out. I'm not done with the story yet. Wait, wait till you get the end. You can see the whole thing. I can tell you exactly what happened because it's a crystal clear surveillance video of the whole thing. The 68-year-old's alive. Survived. It was a year ago. Still recovering. He's, he was in critical condition for four days. Internal bleeding. Severe concussion. Uh, he has trouble uh, talking and reading today. Okay, so his life's completely changed for the worse. A totally innocent 68-year-old man just working. And you say, but Slater, how do you know this is the right guy? Good question. Well, we have surveillance footage of it perfectly. We also have surveillance footage of a man riding a bicycle away from the store. They found that bicycle in his apartment. There's also surveillance footage all shown to a jury of him trying to sell large amounts of jewelry in two local pawn shops a week later. Then he was finally arrested after trying to sell jewelry to a woman at a gas station. So they go to trial. Justice for the family, right? Man almost killed their father. So let's, let's get him in jail. Let's make sure this doesn't happen again. They have the trial. Jury stumped. Couldn't reach a verdict. Hung jury. Which means there was at least one person. One person on that jury who said, no, I can't do it. One person in that jury who decided that this was a good opportunity for equity justice. No, it's wrong to put him in jail. Hung jury. Can't, there could not be a more slam dunk case in the history of criminal cases. Could not be more slam dunk ever. N not in no way. How do we know it was him? Here's a video of him, his face. You can see his face of that guy. And here's the bicycle he used. It was in his apartment. And here he is with a ton of jewelry that came from the guy's store. Hung jury. It's not enough.
Just not enough evidence. Okay, that just happened. Calvin Ushery, U-S-H-E-R-Y. Could you imagine being on that jury and there's that one guy on the jury? Maybe it's a couple, maybe it's more than one, I don't know. But there's, there's at least one guy that's like, no, guys, I'm not doing it. I refuse. What do you mean you refuse? And here's the thing. If that guy or that guy's father was almost murdered, he still wouldn't change his mind. You know, we need to, we need to understand the murderer's emotional truth. Remember we talked about that term a couple weeks ago? Emotional truth. There's some woke comedian who made up all of his stories, which is fine. That's what comedians do. But this guy's not really a comedian. He's an activist first, comedian second. And uh, he was called out for all these stories being fake. His whole shtick is how I'm a minority in America and America's racist place. Like the whole thing. And he made up all the stories. And uh, he said, well, it was my emotional truth. What a great term. It's my emotional truth. So what's the emotional truth? There's a mob of children in Chicago the other day, robbed a bunch of stores. And the mayor said, first of all, you can't use the word mob. He uses the term large gathering. You can't call it a mob. Mob has negative connotations, now even racist connotations. It's a large gathering. Just like, uh, just like the people who are going to go to one of the many college football games tomorrow. It's just a large gathering. That's all that is. There's no difference between this large gathering that's going to a football game and this other large gathering that's stealing everything out of a whole street worth of stores. There's nothing. That they're, they're both large gatherings and you're not allowed to make any other distinguishing characteristic between them at all. all right? There's no difference, says the mayor of Chicago. And he said that these kids wouldn't be robbing stores if there was more economic opportunity available, available for them. That's it. They just needed jobs. Have you ever heard such a pile in all your life? This guy too, this guy who robbed the jewelry store, who slammed the guy's head in with a hammer uh, 28 times, he just needed a job. If he just had a job, he wouldn't resort to this. And no one's asking what his emotional truth is, right? Sure, we have video surveillance of what actually happened, but what is your emotional truth, Calvin, about what happened that day? Is your emotional truth that you robbed the jewelry store? No, Your Honor, my emotional truth is that I did not rob the jewelry store. How can that be your emotional truth? Well, I feel like it's my jewelry store, but it's not your jewelry store. Well, that's my emotional truth. Okay, case closed. You're innocent. How does the criminal feel? Oh, was he crying afterwards? Did poverty lead him to do it? Was it the legacy of slavery and lynching? It was Jim Crow. Mm, He did it because of Jim Crow. Your Honor, Jim Crow. Ah, you're innocent. I think it was the racist business owners moving out of the neighborhood. It was the food deserts. It's a food desert. You know, the mayor of Chicago is considering city-owned grocery stores in Chicago. Oh, I'd love it. I can't wait to see that. I would, that's so unbelievable. We have chronicled very clearly the, uh, the great successes of city-owned schools. So I would love to see city-owned grocery stores. How is the government going to do it providing actual food to people in our cities? It's great. All right. So, uh, rock by, have you ever, have you ever been an addict or known an addict? Have an addict in your family? It's awful. So, uh, you think there's a rock bottom and then, so you have, you have a rock bottom set. 
And you're like, okay, things are going to get worse until they hit this rock bottom. And you're in this weird place where you're hoping for the rock bottom, and it's just it's a horrible thing to go through. And then they hit that point, and you're like, okay, rock bottom. Nope. And you have to you have to reset. You have to make a new rock bottom. And that's where I'm at right now. These stories I just shared with you, this is a new rock bottom that I'm setting in my brain of how bad things are going to get before people wake up. Because your friend can be murdered in cold blood. The store in your neighborhood can be completely looted to the point where there is, it, it's completely empty, like comically empty, and you're making excuses. We have people arrested 66 times murdering Yale graduate businessmen fathers for no reason, point blank in the head, shoot him in the head for no reason. And we have guys bashing in the face of jewelers with all the evidence you could possibly imagine. There's no way you could ever have more evidence about what happened. Hung jury. So we, we, are, we prepare for a new rock bottom. We're not there yet. Alex Marlowe, editor. Hello, welcome back to Breitbart News Daily. Alex Marlowe, editor in chief, Breitbart News. Uh, his new book, Breaking Biden, is out now. Please go buy it. It's wonderful. And he's been on all these different Bill O'Reilly, everything. We talk a little bit about that. All the different people he's been on lately, which is great. But uh, he hasn't talked enough about Ukraine with those people and Joe Biden's involvement with Ukraine, causing of the Ukraine war, is the claim. Putin first and foremost, but Biden number two, uh, and then immigration. He says he hasn't talked about immigration in any of these interviews as well. And all this is in the book, Breaking Biden. Please buy it and enjoy listening to Alex now. I'm Alex. How you doing, sir? Uh, Mike, I didn't catch the name of that last caller. What was his name again? Ooh, uh, he would, that would be uh, now famed uh, Breitbart News Daily caller, The Verminator. It's a, it just when you have a name like that, like you would think it would come up maybe once or twice in the in the conversation, but it didn't. It, so the genesis was a guy reason. called in uh, the other yesterday, two days ago. And he said, "Hey, uh, shout out to uh, my buddy, the Verminator." So about Kevin McCarthy, I said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, <laughs> who's the Verminator?" <laughs> so here the Verminator revealed himself and revealed oh. himself to be a good man. Yeah, so, I got it. Got it. Yeah. Good. No, no, no. This is good. So, you know, you get these characters on the show and they almost take on uh, a, a it's almost like you're watching a movie or TV show. I was thinking I love your point, by the way, about the quoting of the Bible. And it's not just other smart or uh, meaningful historic works where you could say you're quoting them. and You sound smart. Uh, if you're quoting Will Ferrell movies, like people think, wow, that's amazing. The guy retains the Will Ferrell movie quotes. What a reference. It's the, yeah. yeah, it's the, the exactly. That's what like, I can't believe that guy knows all of the Jim Carrey's canon. I mean, the, 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 that's how it would be. Um, but it is funny when you quote the Bible, say, oh, this Bible thumper, like, what, what, what's, what's this guy's deal? I bet he's weird. <laughs> oh, this, yeah. I didn't tune in for this. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, this is yeah. this isn't this is what I need in the morning. Um, no, I know it, it's it's a great it, it's a great point. And I'm glad you made it. Um, I just like to reference the fact that it's four o'clock in the morning for you, Alex. Yeah, and, not uh, bad. Grateful though. for that. And uh, um, you've been up a lot I, I, these last couple of days. 
I haven't been. So I'm really lucky. I have not uh, had the early morning slate. We This is my second rodeo on book promotion. So the only time I was up early this week was for you, which was at the five o'clock hour, which is barely even up early, Mike. I mean, come on. You, yeah, that's, that's like that's awkwardly the, early where it's like, ugh, yeah. like, you definitely can't go back to bed, you know. Yes, it's a, you know, all those stories about, about Kobe Bryant getting up early and then uh, just sitting there um, pl- playing on the internet, going on TikTok. You know, I mean, that, 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 that that's what he was doing, right? I mean, it's, no, wait a minute. He was working on his stuff. No, that's right. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> what are you doing at 4 a.m.? No, it's, uh, I'm talking to you, talking to you, and, and uh, talk, talking about the news and talking about some books and Love talking it. about uh, whatever else you want to talk about. So, Breaking Biden's the book. Um, any, so I've watched a bunch of your interviews, the Bill O'Reilly one in particular. We talked to Bill the other day. Um, have any interviews, and I saw you to Dennis Prager. I haven't seen that one yet, though, but that's on oh, Breaking.com. I like so Dennis. Um, anyone stand out? Any, any particular interviews or questions or something come out of any of these interviews that were like, oh, good, I'm glad, I'm glad we got that out there this is this is a bit of a trap because there's so many people who have shown love and support for the book who don't have to and there's nothing in it for them there's nothing financial in it for them there's um you know i I try to be a nice guy all the time anyway so i'm not the best at enforcing quid pro quos where uh, if someone does me a favor then you know i'll probably do something nice for them anyway regardless um so i'm very heartened by most of the conservative movement um, st- e- there's even a couple of brave people at Fox who stood up to the bookers who don't like have me on and got me through somehow, uh, which is, I appreciate. Um, so it's, it's a, I, I'm going to try to resist, uh, but I'll give a couple of highlights. I think it's very cool. Um, the, uh, the, the prayer interview is unbelievable. If you could find it, I think it's on Breitbart. Um, and interestingly, he hadn't read the book. I feel like. I would try my best to read the books um, when I was hosting the show before I would have the authors on. And uh, I'm two out of three, I would be able to do that. And I feel like the interviews were a little better when I read the book. Uh, Prager doesn't get around to reading all the books first. And I, for whatever reason, he still comes up with some of the best questions, which is which is mind blowing. Um, and then the other people I get to talk to are just sort of legends of the of our time, either in news or politics. Um, we did an hour with Don Jr., which we just posted or we're posting this morning to Breitbart, uh, which is just so cool because he's just so beloved by our audience. Um, and he was so uh, enthusiastic. Um, I talked to Sean Hannity yesterday. It's on 600 stations, um, including Patriot, which is, you know, a- any even a few minutes with him is so important because of the vastness of his audience. It's just so powerful. Um, uh, Bill is always one of the best to talk to and just sort of surreal talking to Bill because yeah. I was watching Bill over my dad's shoulder when I was like, oh, it's gotta be middle school, you know? And it's the, uh, it just, you know, just, just that he's taking you seriously is even <laughs> though I've been in this business a long time, been editor in chief of Breitbart, it'll, it'll be 10 years this month. It still wow. is kind of like wild that like Bill O'Reilly's reading my book and yeah. asking, asking me probing questions about it. Um, but I will say Maybe the best one thing that I've done um, is the live signing is what they call it with Emma Joe yesterday, where Emma Joe was the interviewer and she interviewed me about the book because she's such an expert in the subject matter because she broke all the laptop from hell scoops. So and it's really fun to get interviewed by a protege. Um, I have not had that experience, I don't think, before. Um, maybe, I guess, going on with Jerome when he's hosted here a couple of times. I guess that would be that would be about 
that would be it, which is which I always like when that happens too. Um, but that's kind of cool. So I think th- you can find that now at Brightport.com. So if anyone's interested, uh, they should check that out because yeah. I think it's pretty great. Yeah, live signing was fun. Um, let's talk about, and I, I definitely will watch the uh, the Prager one. Uh, it's all available on Brightport.com. Watch them all. And then buy the book. You can just know it all yourself. Oh, um, and um, people who care about these things, um, Levin tonight, um, another just monster show. Um, and I'll be on Cudlow's TV show today, which is, again, anytime they let me on Fox, you know that something special's happened. Yeah. Um, this has been, <laughs> doesn't happen very often. <laughs> I'd say, I, I would say I'm, I'm running at a less than once a year clip over my What, what is that? Fox, why why so. is there not a more of a partnership there? Who, who's, um, who's talking bad about whom? I would assume it's mostly out of respect that Fox considers Breitbart competitive and they really don't want to give us free advertising. Um, And but, you know, if I want to be more cynical, I think there's probably a handful of people in the room who really, really, really have bought into that. You should not have Breitbart on um, because either it doesn't look good for the brand or the competitive thing. Um, But occasionally you get people who are willing to fight through the corporate um, power structure and just say, this is an important topic. I want to talk to whoever I want. Um, you know, traditionally over the years, Tucker's done that. Um, and uh, Cudlow's doing that now. Um, Rhea Bartiromo did it last week, um, as you know. So that's very cool. And it just, it, look, uh, Breitbart's a smaller corporation, but we have our own policies. I understand how difficult it is to, when management sets a policy, to fight through it if you're talent. Um but it is, I'm going to focus on the positive, which is I'm, I'm very pleased that at least a couple of hosts are putting their foot down saying, uh, look, our audience doesn't like Joe Biden. Th- this is the playbook to make sure he doesn't win again. Yeah. I want to talk to the guy who wrote the book about it. Yes. Uh, and and, <laughs> and it's, it, it feels like that would be automatic, but I've been in this business long enough to know it's far from it, far yeah. from it. Yeah, you put our differences aside. Um, so we talked in the last segment about the Joe Biden outsourcing American soft power of our movie industry to China. So we did mm-hmm. a, a run through of that chapter and that paid off exactly as I hoped it would would when you teased it last week. Uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to talk about the Ukraine chapter. Yeah, uh, so one of the talk- most important ones. Yep, because, well, a lot of reasons. So I was talking to Dan Crenshaw the other day and uh, Dan Crenshaw's very pro-war in Ukraine yeah. and absolutely rejects the idea that NATO expansion had anything to do with instigating Russian action, like just mm. flat out, you're an idiot. You actually, he actually said uh, that you, it was me, he said you, Slater, uh, need to go back and talk to your Berkeley law professors or something like that. And I was like, oh, Alex would need to be the one to go back. Like, but the point is, you're just like an ignorant fool. You have no idea what you're talking about. You're just pontificating as if you're just a, a neophyte in, uh, in, uh, in, in college still, right? With your, with your dumb Berkeley professors. So what have you learned about Joe Biden and his role in causing this war? That's so mean. Did he really did was it was this where where was this that he said this? Yeah, it was on what my TV show. Guy. And it was it was twenty five minutes of that. It was very bizarre. It was so weird. We played a lot of it here. Uh uh-huh. and, 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 I, and I didn't say it beforehand. I didn't I I didn't want to tease any like I didn't want to hint at what it was it was. And everyone who called in was like, Whoa, what was that? Yeah, it just has, sounds very triggered. It's a the, he gets triggered. It's a it's very very strange. Um, he, here here is where I'm sure he didn't bother to read read, read the book. I I don't know if you were even going yeah, off the book. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, he, here here's the math. I'll I'll walk people through it as fast as I can without trying to be 
speak too quickly, which is my tendency sometimes when I have a lot to say. Um, but basically, the everything that Joe Biden did, uh, going back to the Obama Biden years, uh, it has empowered Putin and had had he did some some many things. They're very provocative, I think, in terms of Putin allowing him to build up his army and giving him the impression America would be very weak if he invaded and then uh, crossing red lines over and over again with Putin. Um, and this, some of this is, you know, to be blamed on Obama, but a lot of it is the same people. The people who were in charge of the Ukraine-Russia policy then are the same as now, which I think was an incredibly terrible decision. Um, but I would start with the U.S. cutting off uh, oil uh, uh, enabled Putin in, in Biden's year. So it's kind of the first place that I would start. So it's the, the fact that we cut off our own oil drilling, uh, that we stopped getting our own energy from underneath our earth. Um, is th- that favors other oil-rich nations like Putin. So Putin's basically building up his army with extra money he's getting because Joe Biden is refusing to flood the world market with um, uh, uh, with, with American oil. So I, I think that, that that's the first thing. Um, Joe, of course, famously had that minor incursion line where he said, you know, basically Putin could do a minor incursion and we might not do anything. That's um, an amazing the, the exact sentence. quotes in, in, in the book. But but it's kind of like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this guy said this. Um, as Joe Biden has been known to do every once in a while, Mike, as you know, say something that you, you can't believe that actually flew out of someone's mouth. Um, and then the, the next thing is kind of I trace back in the book. All of the mistakes Obama made, first of all, um, the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, this elevates Putin on the world stage. It was a terrible deal. The open secret in Washington is everyone hated it. Everyone thought it was a bad deal. Um, and they they thought that uh, that that it was uh, part of it was in order to execute the deal. Uh, long story short, Russia gets you know played a big league uh, in that and. While all this is going on, this buildup that's taking place, more details on that in a moment, uh, what's Biden been trying to do? Biden wants that deal back. He's trying to get that deal back basically only to save face for Obama because everyone hated that deal and Trump took it off. But no one really liked it, and uh, uh, Biden's trying to bring it back. So Biden does this stuff also that's provocative, like calling uh, Putin a butcher, which is you know just egging him on, just getting people jacked up, uh, whereas Trump never did that stuff. Trump was always very wise about when you've got a really dangerous guy, then you don't just smack talk him and not back it up on the world stage. It, it's a it's an act of provocation. Yes, Trump he does always this starts all, out loving, always starts out praising and loving first with everyone. What did he you do with Kim Jong Kim Jong Un? What, what oh, does he do? How does he talk about him? Lo- oh, great, great. Love Kim Jong Un until Kim Jong Un does something bad, and then Trump will come back out at him. Is that what right. you've seen? Ex- Exactly. And uh, Trump had put real sanctions on Russia. I actually enumerate a lot of those in Breaking the News, my first book. So I don't I try not to spend too much time reiterating all of them. But he did a few really substantial things in terms of uh, uh, cutting off Russia in uh, at least limiting, sanctioning some of their access to world markets. And I think that was very subtle, but powerful that Trump did that. And Obama took a lot of those things off. Um, he took a lot of the good things that Trump did off. So, uh, it, again, going back to uh, Obama, Biden, they, the New START Treaty empowers Russia. Um, they allowed Russia to sell nuclear material to U.S. companies. Um, they allowed Russia to get a foothold in the U.S. uranium supply. You might be familiar with that story, Mike, that was broken by our friend Peter Schweitzer. Um, they helped Russia build this thing called Skolkovo, which was supposed to be a Silicon Valley 
in Russia, and it turned out to be just a place for military tech transfer. So Obama-Biden was doing this, like boosting Russia, giving them money, giving them the ability to invade places. Um, the history is that whenever there is a red line, which is the suggestion that NATO could be expanding into former Soviet states or places right in Russia's backyard, Putin invades. Uh, I give two examples in the book. Georgia, 2008, expands. Uh, uh, there's a NATO summit where they're talking about Georgia and Putin invades. 2014, you've got a expansion into, there's a lot of discussion of NATO uh, expanding and then Russia invades Crimea. So basically, you've got a, a, Putin sent a very clear signal. You do enough NATO talk, then he starts invading places. It's one thing he does. And so we've got two clear examples during the Obama-Biden years. So oh, Biden's got to be pretty cautious of this stuff. So how does he behave? He behaves as if none of this ever happened ever. And he starts putting all these deep staters into his charge of his Russia-Ukraine policy. The main person, someone who I focus on quite a bit in the book, is this lady named Victoria Newland, yes. who is an actual Russophobe. She hates Russia. And she's one of the most important people uh, in terms of crafting Ukraine-Russia policy. She was actually, Mike, at one time banned from Russia, literally banned her from the country. And they had eventually had to let her back in. Um, and then so she gets back in. She has to go to a meeting since she's been uh, under Secretary of State or whatever her exact title is, um, which I don't, don't have off the top of my head. Um, but she eventually gets back in, and she's immediately disrespectful. Uh, she is uses all, she dresses inappropriately for the meeting, so the story goes. So you've got someone who hates <laughs> what Russia. Mean, what do you mean dresses inappropriately for the meeting? Yeah, she didn't. She did, uh, was just wore disrespectful attire to a diplomatic meeting with another nuclear power, according to the, to the sources I reviewed for the book. Interesting. So, and this is someone who's supposed to be in charge of Ukraine-Russia relations. We know she hates Russia. Biden puts her in charge. She goes to Russia and is rude, allegedly. So it, all of this is provocation. All of this is to suggest it's a constellation that the U.S. Uh, is just trying to get under Putin's skin. Which I'm not a Putin fan. I hate Putin. And it, to be honest with you, at the early stages of the war, I kind of was uh, shocked that he invaded and until I really started to unpack it and what was going on. And I, the, at the early stages before he started to steal all of our money, like, I didn't hate what Zelensky was doing. So it's the, I'm not coming at this like I'm some guy who just uh, says all wars are bad all the time, no matter what. I'm not, that's not my wiring. I think we're in way too many wars, spend too much money on wars, all that stuff, Mike. But it's the, I'm not coming here with a heavy bias. So, but if you start peeling back the math uh, and, you're, and you're putting intentionally provocative people into these roles, uh, into roles where they are living to score points with a globalist political press. Let me go on. So there's an important part of this that I haven't touched on, which is maybe the most important part, which is the Biden administration is made up largely of the military industrial complex. Mm -hmm. People who make their money from the military industrial complex uh, and then they go in the Biden administration. Eventually, they'll get out. And where are they going to go? They're going to go back to the military industrial complex. So now, look, I'm not saying we shouldn't have a defense industry. I'm, I'm not trying to be an extremist or radical and all this. Uh, but I will tell you that there's a guy who's in charge of our State Department named Tony Blinken. And Tony Blinken had a client called Boeing. You cannot have Boeing as a client 
and not be compromised in virtually every single state, every single country where you're supposed to do diplomacy. I, you, you simply can't do it and be Secretary of State and, and have a financial interest tied to Boeing. You can't do it. Because nearly every place where we do diplomacy, Boeing has a role in it, including Ukraine, where we have sent Boeing recently. Um, Boeing has, we, we have authorized Boeing to send X, Y, and Z weapons to Ukraine, for example. So there's a direct financial benefit to people who are in the Boeing business by our government, by our foreign policy. And this is the entirety, and I give name after name in the book, of who Biden has staffed his uh, alleged diplomacy team, people who have a vested interest, a financial interest in the war industry. This is the whole apparatus. This is the deep state. This is how they operate. It's follow the money stuff. So Biden's out there. He's calling for unwavering support for Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. Unwavering support for Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity? What signals that send to Putin? Especially when you know Biden's really sort of a, a, a weak guy. That's why I wrote the whole section on foreign policy in the book is uh, the Biden doctrine, uh, speak, uh, speak loudly and carry a small stick. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, that's what he does. Is it just he's just barking on this stuff? He doesn't back it up. Um, Zelensky tells the world that he's in. He's in, he's in NATO. He's allowed in. Now, I don't know if Putin believed it, but Zelensky's saying that. It's getting reported in the press. It's going viral. U.S. is sending weapons to Ukraine. They're sending weapons to Ukraine before the invasion. Newland sent to Russia to dissuade them from invading. Why isn't Newland on the bench at this point? Why is she out there going? Why is she the one? Uh, Russia's probably thinking, why are they sending this woman? She's completely nuts and she hates us. <laughs> Why is she here? Why isn't any other person? Why isn't Mike Slater? Why isn't producer Zach and Bill? Zach and Bill <laughs> should have gotten sent to Russia before Victoria Newland to negotiate a peace. And yet that's who Biden sent. So Putin asked for a guarantee that Ukraine was never going to invade. Needless to say, that didn't happen. Newland intervened in the conversation, threatens Putin. You know what, you know what she tells him? What? Build back better inside Russia. That's what she says. She tells Putin to build back better inside Russia. So I, I wonder in the book why there wasn't a much more public effort to tell Zelensky, de-escalate. Was there even a private effort? Of course, the Biden administration won't talk to me about this stuff. You know, I send them numerous press inquiries. They don't want to talk to me. It's going to be the biggest book ever about Biden. And I'm going to report all this stuff that's out there because a lot of it is publicly available. And the vast, vast, vast majority of the book is publicly available stuff that people who are curious enough could go find if they wanted to. I'm going to report all this. You want to talk to me about this stuff? Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I want to know, was there a push to de-escalate behind the scenes with Zelensky? Because he's out there saying I'm in NATO, which is as clear as day, a red line for Putin. I, and uh, all we can see is we're sending Ukraine money. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. We're sending Ukraine money. We're sending Ukraine weapons. And we're sending people who hate Russia to do diplomacy with Russia. It's absolutely insanity when you lay it out like that. And uh, uh, hopefully Congressman Crenshaw checks that out. Um, let me just play a little bit of this of Crenshaw. I don't want to make this whole Crenshaw thing, but uh, I, talked, I asked him about peace. I said, hey, whenever Trump talks about Ukraine, it's always in the, in the concept of peace. Like, we got to find peace. We got to get peace. I said, well, how come you never talk about peace? And here's what he said. I'm not naive. 
I'm not a fool. So so a fool might say, I'm for peace. Well, that's nice. I mean, go write a fiction novel about your peace. We're not the ones who, who choose peace or no peace. The Russians are. You have to you have to put them in a position where they have to choose peace. That's why you don't hear it, because I'm not so stupid. And, and I'm so tired of this, right? Like I hear people try to take this like silly third option. Well, I'm for peace. I just think people should stop fighting. We're fueling a war. Well, you know what? Go hang out with your 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 late sixties liberal professors. They'll literally say, you know, I mean, I think I think Russia should lose. I think Ukraine should win, but it's really just not our fight. Well, let me tell you something. If you're choosing not to help Ukraine, you are actively choosing for Russia to win. You are being pro-Russia. If you have a friend who's getting their butt kicked and all you have to do is give them a weapon, all you just do is hand it to them. Just hand them that weapon and they can fight off their attacker and you refuse to do it, you are actively choosing for your friend to die. I don't hear. What is that? I, I see. I, I'm for a third option too. I, I actually say in the book, even though there's there's no other person um, who's more responsible for this war than than Joe Biden. I say other than Putin. P- Putin's still more responsible. He invaded. He didn't have to invade, and I wish he didn't invade. And all these people are dead because of him. So uh, totally. But it's the there is a third way, which is that we support. Ukraine to an extent that isn't needlessly provocative to a nuclear power. Mm. We do it in a way that's much more uh, above board. We're not putting people who hate Russia in charge of a Russian diplomacy. We speak about Putin the way Trump spoke about Putin, where he was tough on Putin in terms of policy. But in terms of rhetoric, he wasn't a big jerk about it. I mean, it just seems like there's smarter things. And if Mike, we're going to send him money, why do we have to send him, you know, perfectly round numbers, like $100 million with no checks on it? I'm sorry, $100 billion. Uh, and and keep sending them check after check. Why can't we have some accountability of where the money's going? There's clearly a lot of daylight between uh, let Russia take over the world and um, what we're doing now, which is endless war, endless spending, no accountability. The military industrial complex, Alex Marlow, of course, <clears throat> the book is Breaking Biden. Go buy it now. It just came out two, three days ago. The military industrial complex is such an interesting thing because I, I dismissed it for a long time. I don't know why it sounds conspiratorial or something. But then you realize that the guy who coined the term, or at least popularized it, was Dwight D. Eisenhower, the supreme allied commander of World War II. <laughs> like, oh, this is a guy who would know, and a guy who you would think would be in favor of the military-industrial complex, but he spoke against it more than anyone. It was his farewell address. His like, final parting thought was, beware of this thing. And this thing now is, is much larger than he probably ever could have imagined. Yeah, and I think that one thing that people who are generally war skeptics, um, which I I am certainly now, um, I wasn't necessarily growing up just because I read too much National Review and stuff um, when I was <laughs> when I was a young man. Um, but but now that I've gotten older and smarter and sp- spoken to people who are in the military who have, um, I think, a worldview closer to mine now, um, and I've learned so much over that time, being in D.C., Mike. I've said this to the audience before. One of the saddest and clearest and truest things is the power of the military industrial complex. And you go to D.C. as I did from the West Coast, thinking that that must be some sort of a conspiracy theory. But then you get there and you realize it's the simplest thing in the world. It's the this is how people make money. It is. And you don't vote for things that is going to keep food out of your family's mouth. People just don't do it. The vast, vast, vast majority of people don't have that level of integrity. And when there's literally billions of dollars that is concentrated in the defense industry, 
And you don't even have to necessarily fight a war. You just have to prepare for a war or help other people prepare for a war. And then you do billions of dollars of business. It's very difficult to, when you're serving your term in government or in the bureaucracy, to pursue a policy where you are not building up that industry. Because that industry, if it's worth, if you're cutting half their business off, that is money out of your pocket. That is food out of your family's mouth. And people are just not capable of doing that. So every time we build another bomb or another rocket or have another technology developing, uh, that means another government contract is going to one of these giant private companies, uh, which are mostly public-private partnerships, but the people who work in those companies are the exact people who you find in our State Department, in our Pentagon, and in our congressional staffs, et cetera. They go and they ser- serve a term, and they go back out. And once you realize, oh, yeah, of course, just follow the money stuff. Like, that's what it is. Then it becomes less of a conspiracy, and it becomes more patently obvious. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Mitch McConnell said, funding Ukraine is the number one priority for Republicans. And Crenshaw made the point. He said, it's a win-win-win. We give Ukraine our old weapons that are collecting dust on the shelf and we get to replenish our supply with newer, better weapons. That's what he said. I'm yeah, sure. that's right. And 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 who gets paid? The guys with the Boeing. Uh, and I've no, I'm not disrespecting Boeing. Like, that's not the point. I'm not trying to say like if you work for Boeing, it's bad. I got a friend who used to work for Boeing. He's a great guy. Like, like it's like I'm not, <laughs> I, I'm not trying to go to some nutty place, Mike. Yeah, like I'm we do need to, bombs. Like I'm for, yeah, I'm pro bomb. We need a few. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, we need some great planes. I enjoy Top Gun. Like it was, it's a, that's cool. But it's the, uh, it, 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 to understand that the people who are running our State Department are making massive amounts of money from the people who make the bombs. Come on, man. Like, we got to act like that's not happening. Yep. I, uh, I want to ask you one last question, and I want everyone to buy the book. Um, the Sanctuary Country chapter about Biden. Yeah. How do you take that and square it with yesterday's news, news that Joe is uh, building a wall, building 20 miles of wall, and is going to uh, increase deportations of Venezuelans uh, back to their their home country assuming those two things will happen which i don't think yeah. they will uh how do those how do those square okay i got my happy answer i got my sad answer and thank you for bringing this up because my uh you've gone somewhere where i've probably done 15 interviews this week this is the first time anyone's asked me anything about immigration so which is my favorite topic um the the so i'll give you my uh happy answer first my happy okay. answer is biden is looking at the polls they're so bad there's no one waiting in the wings, as I point out numerous times in the books. No one's going to come in and save the day. And he it's actually so bad, he has to cave. And he's thought, okay, well, this is Trump's number one issue. Um, maybe if I beat Trump at that, then um, I can take that talking point from him. And it is really too crazy at the border. And it's not just hurting border states now, thanks to Governor Abbott. Now it's hurting you know, blue states. Um, so I, I just, I just got to take the L on this one and shut it down and maybe yeah. I can do some jujitsu politically later. Okay. Um, it, it's the, that, 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 that is kind of the happy, the happy answer is that, that it's a cave. Um, the less happy answer, the one that is, uh, is still fine, but less happy for me. He has nothing to lose. It, it's the, no one on the left is going to abandon him. He gives them enough. Um, all the rhetoric for that you might see today from the AOCs of the world saying what a bad guy he is is just so they can raise funds, which they're happy to do because grandstanding raises you tons and tons of money in Washington on both sides of the aisle. Everyone, I think this is kind of another open secret that's happening. 
and he's not going to lose a single vote and everyone is going to tolerate it from him. Um, and it is the, the, it, it is potentially one of those things where he actually feels like it's the right move, um, now and his hands are tied. He's got to do it and, but it's not going to hurt him at all. And we're going to get excited about it and we're going to think, oh, this is a good sign, but ultimately it's not going to change a single vote. Um, and it really is just sort of a flash in the pan news cycle that again, a, a positive one. So I'm hoping it's not that I'm hoping this is a sign that Biden is really on the ropes and is really trying to scramble and has to, and, and has to move policy, major policy, but he's got a pretty good instinct of knowing what the base wants and just dawned on me. Oh yeah. He's not gonna get hurt for this. It's a, he's, he's not going to lose votes and he might end up looking more responsible in the end. So, but I'm so happy he's doing it. So I think it's a good day and everyone should, should rejoice. If it, if it's a thing that he actually pulls through on and does. Uh, yeah. Well, that's the other thing is how much is he going to do? But then again, the bar so low. And I wrote about this in the book, Trump got almost no wall done. And um, I was very complimentary of Trump's final year uh, border policies, so it's not like a Trump bash, but it, the very little wall got got built. So it's just one yeah, of those. We got to run. Why? Why is this your favorite topic? You said you love talking about immigration. Why? Oh, I just think it's the it is the existential threat, and it's also representative of a country that doesn't respect itself. Um, I, if for America to have a culture, we have to have first of all a border. I, I just don't see how you have a culture with no border. If you don't care who's coming in and out of the country, then you don't care about your culture. And if there's no American culture, then what are we other than a blob of land? Um, and I would like to think for my own sake and for the sake of my children, I figure you're with me on this, Mike, that it, it would be nice if American exceptionalism is real. And so I like that idea that America is an exceptional place. And when we are the only major nation that doesn't doesn't have a border, that does make me feel like, well, you know, maybe we, we don't think of ourselves as exceptional. And that's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think the left is already there. I think 40% of the country is already there at a minimum that we're not exceptional. And uh, we got to fight to keep that thing a majority. Yeah. Thank you for talking about culture. That's what it really is all about. Breaking Biden, exposing the hidden forces and secret money machine behind Joe Biden, his family, and his administration by Tom Selleck. Uh, Tom, thanks. <laughs> Good Sorry. Time. Whenever I just uh, see no, you. It's, it's easy to, it's, that, that, that was always a goal. Um, I, can I say to the audience that if you're, if you're on the fence here, um, uh, this really is necessary ideas that I think are f- forming the arguments that we're going to need to make for the next 13 months if we want Joe Biden to be defeated and we can't sit around and wait for someone else uh, to do it. They're here and I think it's important. Uh, I wouldn't have spent this much time on it if I didn't think it was essential and um, the media is trying to suppress this book. There is an, it's getting only conservative media is stepping up. I, I want to force the hand of the establishment media to cover it. And uh, the more people go out and support it and talk about it, et cetera, and of course buy it, um, the, the, the more it helps some of these conversations start. And uh, so it, it is the, the obvious point, but in a way it's the most important point. Yeah, I imagine uh, colleagues, friends, whoever else who are like, oh, but Biden, you know, he's a nice guy. He's not Trump. He's nice. And, and now when you know, when you read the book, you're like, oh, OK. All right. Uh, where do we begin? Right. And you just you can now have the ammo you need in order to make the uh, the foolproof argument about who Joe Biden really is. So we need this because uh, it's it's game time now. This is <laughs> this is it. Like we need. That's right. Truth. Breaking Biden. Alex Marlowe. Pleasure, Alex. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Mike. Well done. Breaking Biden. Go buy it right now. Everywhere you buy books, Mike Slater, Breitbart News Daily, spread the word. I'm American made. I got American power.
Hope you have a wonderful weekend. I am on vacation next week. An old, dear friend of mine, Brett Winterbull. We, we both worked in San Diego together for many years. I adore Brett. He's a wonderful person. He'll be filling in next week. And we'll see you the week after. Spread the word. Eyes.